Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And diehard fans of the show will remember this week's guest all the way back to episode 35. Can you believe that? During which he explained how rock music almost did not exist, if not for a guy named Palestrina. Right. And you also explained, Charles Leach, how we actually do get goosebumps when we experience music. So welcome back to the show, Thank you. Insights Guru and Semiotician, Mr. Charles Leach. Very kind. Thanks for coming in. Always a pleasure. Great to be back. So uh, the last time we spoke was, I th- I want to say, maybe December 2000, was it 16 or 17? 16? Yeah, that's probably cool. 16. Yeah. That's crazy. That is crazy. Right? Yeah. It's typically crazy, though, but it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm just glad you're back. <laughs> and you've got a list of songs here. So... I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but your episode was a favorite really? um, among listeners. Yeah, That's so flattering. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's, it's fascinating stuff. We talked about, you know, the things that I just named, but also my mind was blown. I, you know, I won't get into specific details, but like the things that we talked about in mm. terms of the, the, the scientific aspects of why we love and crave music mm. were discussed. And uh, a lot of people were fascinated by that. Cool. So I'm ready to have my mind blown yet another time. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> of course not. No pressure. It's funny though. I actually I had was thinking about the the relatively uh, academic underpinnings of our talk last time compared to some of the things you have on. Like you actually most of the time have genuine real musicians, <laughs> except for people who just uh, who like to, to talk about it. Which is why I had thought about a synesthesia edition yes um and of course i couldn't remember whether synesthesia as an idea was something that had come up in our conversation before i don't think it had but it's one of the things i love talking about so i thought oh my god what are the chances that it hasn't come up in conversation with you and me Mm. but i don't remember is that had we done that before synesthesia we had not no such a great idea i love it so synesthesia synesthesia has a clinical definition mm-hmm. which has to do with the intrapersonal translation of senses into other senses mm. so intrapersonal in that it happens inside the person okay. right interpersonal is between people intrapersonal is within you mm-hmm. so when things happen within your own body it's intrapersonal so if you have an experience where senses cross over into each other then that experience is called synesthesia. Okay. Uh, and it's most commonly done with smell and visual memory. Mm. Most commonly. Makes sense. So the classic example is you smell apple pie, and that evokes in you a memory of your grandmother cooking apple pie in the kitchen. Yeah. So smell has translated into visual, which is two senses crossing over, is synesthesia. Uh, but of course, any sense can cross over into, into another. And there is a, there is a condition called synesthesia. And if you have it acutely, then you are a synesthete. Mm. And that means you are prone to interpreting sensory input in unconventional ways. Wow. So there are a whole number of famous artists who purportedly had synesthesia. Uh, and if you have it, you can do things like, um, see the color of sound. So sounds have color, right? <laughs> things like that. See, mind blown. Uh, so, uh, you know, Vincent van Gogh, for example, or Vincent van Gogh. I'm never quite sure how that's supposed to be pronounced. I grew up thinking it's, that Vincent van Gogh was van Gogh. It is, isn't it? But I think it's van Gogh. Oh, I've never, ever heard that. No, it's I've weird. You've run Gogh. into it every now and again. Every now and again, somebody who obviously 
feels they know exactly how things are pronounced. <laughs> we'll correct you and tell you that Van Gogh is Van Gogh. Anyway, however you pronounce his name, apparently he had this. So he, he was kind of used to, to translating senses into different, uh, into different senses. Uh, and Oscar Wilde apparently was a synesthete. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole number of really high profile people who, who do this. And a lot of them are artists. And so there is a, there's a, a body of work that uses synesthesia as a way to explain how these, um, really innovative and sometimes iconoclastic artists are actually so good at messing up the status quo is because they're taking the sensory input and they're translating it into completely different senses. And that comes out as art. It comes out as music. It comes out yeah. as things like that. It's a really kind of a neat thing. But we all do it to some degree. Smell is the most common. Mm-hmm. But of course, in, in music, where it often happens is the crossover between music and film. Mm. So it's when you, it's when you hear things and then the sound of something instantly translates into you into a visual image. And it's basically your way of seeing what the sound is because your brain has at some point made some really close connection between the sound of something and the visual of something. Right. Right. So years ago, um, I did some academic work on how our generation, the younger generation, is prone to do that with mass media forms, mm-hmm. with the visuals that come from television and movies, because we've all seen the same movies and we've all seen the television shows. And when you combine that with a really good soundtrack, we all have this kind of shared synesthetic experience, synesthetic experience, where seeing a particular film is accompanied by every particular song or piece of music and so the rest of us we all go through our lives sort of combining those two things together Mm -hmm. uh, in really really strong really strong case so probably the two most well-known examples of that are actually funnily enough are uh, classical music interestingly Mm -hmm. and so one is um uh one is wagner's ride of the valkyries okay right so there's a there's a whole generation and i'm sure you and i are are amongst them that when we hear Ride of the Valkyries, well, let me do it. I'll, I'll sing it to you. You tell me what you think of, right? right. There's... You know the piece? Yeah. Right? So you got a visual with that? Yeah. What's your visual? Star Wars. Ah, that's interesting, right? That's a common one, but there's one that I get even more often than Star Wars. Hmm. What is that? Which is Apocalypse Now. Ah, Helicopters. Really? The helicopters in Apocalypse Now. And it's a very well-known association that a lot of commercials play with. So a lot of ads will have Ride of the Valkyries playing when they want to evoke the idea of massively armed military power <laughs> coming into, for example, your kitchen to kill the germs. Right? So it's the soundtrack to Mr. Clean, for example, because they're making that illusion. You want to bring the helicopters down on germs, then it's Ride the Valkyries is, is kind of what you hear. But Apocalypse Now took that and made it such a such a synesthetic moment mm-hmm. where helicopters and Ride of the Valkyries are kind of combined, that that's then had this echo effect through pop culture. Mm-hmm. So it shows up in Family Guy and The Simpsons, and it shows up in The Blues Brothers. Yeah. It shows up in, I, I lost track, there's like 35, 36 and counting um, uh, sort of media texts that use that. And they're all essentially making an allusion to Apocalypse Now, which kind of used it. Mm. And then the other really strong one is um, uh, Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra. Mm. Which you probably know as 
Bam, 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 which also has a visual for a lot of people. Brent? Stanley Kubrick. Exactly. 2001 Space Odyssey. Yes. Right. And the monolith and the apes and things like that. Absolutely. I can actually see it in my mind right now. Synesthesia. Right there. You're doing it. Exactly. So that's really strong. Um, also, Sprach Zarathustra had a perfectly legitimate history as a piece of music before Stanley Kubrick used it, but nobody now can hear that generationally without thinking of 2001 Space Odyssey. Right. They're absolutely fused into popular imagination. And so that is classic synesthesia. What a great branding. Yeah, it's dynamic, cool, isn't it? Right. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch of theory behind that. And one of the theories behind that has to do with something called mutual implication. And mutual implication then ties into something called narrative congruence. Mm-hmm. And the reason why those things are so strong in pop culture is that the original composer's intent with that music, so the reason why Strauss composed it and the things that Strauss was trying to articulate musically in 1876 are actually exactly the same ideas that Kubrick was trying to communicate when he used it in 2001 Space Odyssey. Because 2001 Space Odyssey was all about the rise of humanity, right? right? It's how ape became man. And Strauss composed that music through the text of uh, Nietzsche's idea of the Superman, mm-hmm. of transcending mere man to become the superman. Not, of course, the DC comic Superman, but super in the idea of being above. Mm-hmm. Right? So anything that's on top is super. So a Superman is above man. So it's the same kind of idea. It's the evolution of man. It's the idea of the master human. It's the idea of jumping up an evolutionary level. Exactly the same idea in Strauss as in Kubrick. And because the musicological intent of it is the same, you get the same idea. It works perfectly together. Now everybody thinks of that. Wow. Right. So that's synesthesia, which is great fun. And so all of the stuff that I, I um, sent over to you all have some kind of synesthetic connection to okay. the shivers, right? So they all give me the shivers, but the reason why they give me the shivers is because of the synesthetic connection they have okay. more than just the pure musicology of them. Uh. So it, it it's a question as whether they would in fact be as effective at evoking the shivers without the synesthetic visual connection. But of course, I'll never know. Because for me, they're fused. And late. that's totally, yeah. that's all I think about. This is fascinating. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> See, mind blown again. Mind blown. Oh, this is so great. So, so that your first, uh, you've got the five songs, but before that, you mentioned the Megadrone. The Megadrone. From film and trailer scores. Absolutely. So the Megadrone is actually a phrase um, that was coined by uh, who I believe is the most famous musical semiotician of all time. Uh, Professor Philip Tagg, mm-hmm. uh, who last I tracked was still teaching uh, in Montreal, okay. um, ex of um, ex of England. So he was at the University of Liverpool for years and years, uh, and I think is still teaching in Concordia, I believe, although um, I've lost track of him. Uh, and he is famous in musical semiotics, so the the whole uh, academic study of how music communicates emotion, communicates meaning, uh, and he wrote this textbook um, called Introduction to the Semiotics of Music, Mm. which is famous because it's never been published. Uh, It's never been published. It's actually unpublishable. And so it exists only as a text that circulated between academics um, through email. And it's unpublishable because it uses so many music examples 
that um, that Dr. Tag was never able to get any kind of copyright uh, clearance for any of them. Ah, licensing. It was licensing nightmare, so overwhelming. He estimated it was going to cost him something like $3.7 million to get mm-hmm. the rights to have all the examples to to publish it in the right way. So it never was. Anyway, it circulates. So he had this idea, which he called the Megadrone. Okay. And the Megadrone is one of those features of uh, television shows and movies, but mainly trailers. It's used a lot in trailers. And it's there to communicate basically the idea that it's all about to go horribly wrong, <laughs> right? Horribly wrong. So a trailer tends to have a very simple structure, yeah. uh, binary structure, right? Two parts. The first part of trailer kind of sets up whatever the situation is. And often in science fiction and drama and horror films, it starts off with everything is all fine. It's Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. La la la, everything is great. You have character X, and you have character Y, and everything is terrific. But because movies are about conflict, the trailer then has to introduce what the idea of the conflict is. And often that's predicated by the megadrone and the megadrone is a sound effect obviously and it as it sounds the name of it it's this very low pitched rumble that suddenly sort of creeps in right and as soon as you hear that you know oh shit it's going to go wrong. Like, it's all going to go wrong. <laughs> so and of course, sure enough, of course it does. Yeah. It's like a premonition, a musical premonition. And there's some really interesting physiological reasons for why the Megadrone works really well for that. There's, there's something about really, really low frequency bass that makes us nervous, yep. right, as human beings. And part of it is that it's omnidirectional. Right. Mm. So upper register sounds, you can always tell left from right, which is why we have left and right speakers. Mm-hmm. I look around this room, lots of speakers. It's always a left and a right signal. And of course, if you get really funny, there's quadraphonic sound and mm. you can have, mm-hmm. of course, 7.1 sound. But of course, the point one, which is the subwoofer, you only ever need one source for bass because the human body is not capable of determining the source of bass sounds. No. That's why there's only ever one. You only need one subwoofer. You put one subwoofer with a room. The subwoofer will blanket that room with sound. You That's are true. not physically capable of telling where that sound comes from. So it doesn't matter where you put it. Put it wherever you want. Doesn't matter. Wow. Right. And of course, your body kind of feels it mm-hmm. on this, on this subterranean level. You don't know where it's coming from. You just know that it's there somewhere. And on some level, that's unnerving. Yeah. Like, the hell, man? Where's that coming from? (laughs) It's suddenly, it wasn't there before, and now it's there. Well, where's the source of that? Well, nobody knows. It's just kind of there. And in trailers, as soon as you hear that, you know the shit's going to hit the wall. And of course, sure enough, in a trailer, it always does. Right? Then the boogeyman pops out, or the kaiju monsters pop out of Pacific Rim, (laughs) or whatever. You know, and it's it's on. And then, of course, from there, the trailer ramps up into whatever denouement the trailer has. And then 30 seconds later, it's over. That's it. But you can always hear the Megadrone in these things. It's always the indication that something is going to go wrong. So for me, the Megadrone in a trailer is basically instant goosebumps. I get the shivers every time I hear. Wow. Because you know that something awful is going to happen. Yeah. It's almost like the it's almost like the calling card of whatever evil is or whatever conflict is going to go on in that. Right. And you know that it's coming. And because you can't see it yet, you don't know it's there's no visual for it yet. Which again is human beings really unnerving. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the monster in the closet, it's the boogeyman in it's the, the dark. Exactly. Right? You can feel it on this gut level. You can't tell the source. You don't even know what direction it's going to come from because that's the way the base response works. You don't know the direction. It could come out of nowhere. It could be behind you. Really super creepy. 
instant shivers. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Wow. Yeah. So, of course, we were talking earlier. We I couldn't find a good example of that, although I strongly suspect that any trailer for Stephen King's It yes. will have the Megadrone in it, mm-hmm. particularly the first one. And that's such a great example of setting up the, the white picket fence Pleasantville situation that Derry, which is the town, is in. And then, of course, as soon as the Megadrone happens, which is when the rain and the uh, there's a there's the boat right in uh, in the trailer. Yep. The way the novel and the movie begins is the um, the paper boat goes into the drain, and sure enough, in the drain lives Pennywise. Yes, I guarantee you that's got the mega drone. In it. I got shivers <laughs> now just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great book, great movie. Uh, Sequel's coming out, so that's exciting. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's awesome. All right, so your first song is uh, Heaven 17 and Let Me Go. Ah, uh, Let Me Go. I have a playlist where I've got uh, nine different versions of Let Me Go. Wow. Uh, 45 minutes worth. Um, so I can listen to Let Me Go for 45 minutes straight, nine different versions. <laughs> it's everything from this great kind of bossa nova acoustic version by a band called um, Nouvelle Vague. Okay. I don't know whether you know them. Nope. Nouvelle Vague. Nouvelle Vague. And they specialize in bossa nova 80s covers. Somebody They've got was, like three albums worth of Bossa Nova 80s. I, I have heard of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great fun. Anyway, they do a version of that. And then Heaven 17 also has about three of their own versions. And then there's sort of various remixes. Mm. Uh, it's a really interesting song. So and actually gives me shivers even without the synesthetic part of it. But certainly there's a synesthetic element to that. Heaven 17. So Let Me Go is really interesting because it, it it's one of those songs that really plays very effectively with a transition between major chords and minor chords. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating in that way. So it, it starts off all very happy in a major chord because, of course, in Western culture, we we correlate major chords with happiness yes. in a way that other cultures sometimes do not. But we do here. So that's fine. And then there's a point in the song where it then it shifts into a minor chord. It leaves the major, shifts into a minor, and all of a sudden, it's not so happy anymore. Mm-hmm. And of course, the lyrics are all kind of about that. You know, once there was a day, right, we were, we were happy all the way, that kind of thing. But then it ends with, you know, let me go. You know, it's, there's, there's best days of our life. You know, the hope of it survives. Yep. The hope of it. Right, because the reality of it is gone, and that kind of shift in the lyrics is reflected in the shift in the in the in the major and the minor keys. Oh, that's fascinating. And the way that does the way the song does it, I've always found really effective. There's a great eight minute and fifty two second long remix of it, mm-hmm. which spends a lot of time playing with that shift between major and the minor. And you could tell whoever did the remix was very aware that that was part of the song's appeal. Is it starts off here and then it just shifts into that into that minor and then just when you think that it's you've had enough of that it shifts back into the major and all of a sudden oh yeah maybe it's not so bad anymore so that tension is really interesting but it's got a great video yeah um, famous video for its day uh, which I think was 1982 something like that I think it is yeah, uh, black and white kind of dystopian post apocalyptic idea where the impossibly new wave singers are wandering around I think London. Um, you know, with no other human beings. And the moment that always gives me the shivers uh, is a memory of seeing it the first time where mm. I was really struck by a sequence that shows the lead singer running in slow motion. Mm-hmm. I, I say memory because I revisited it quite recently just to see, in fact, whether it was as effective 
Uh, and sadly, it wasn't. I was kind of disappointed. Oh. So I've, I've held on to the memory of it more than the current reality of it, because like many things, you go back to it and you're like, oh, shit, really? That? Yeah. Like, that's my memory? <laughs> anyway, too, yeah. when I remember when I first saw it, I was really impressed by the slow-mo running of this guy down the street, clearly like just going for nails yeah. down the streets of London, right? Wearing a big overcoat and the overcoat is billowing behind him and his knees are pumping and his elbows are going up and the chorus of the song is going on, let me go. Yep. And no one knows really what he's running for. Is he running away? Is he running to something? He's just kind of going flat out, mm-hmm. maybe overwhelmed by the lack of humanity in one of the world's largest cities. While this music is going on in the background, shifting between major and minor keys. So I can't hear the music without seeing him running in slow motion. Mm. For me, that's got the same kind of synesthetic fusing that 2001 Odyssey has with also Sprague's Arthustra. Yeah. They're absolutely combined for me. And every time I see that, or every time I hear it and I see him running in slow motion, I get a little shiver at the idea that there's something in that transition between the, the optimism of the major key and the resignation of the minor key that's driven him to run as fast as he can, clearly with no real destination in mind. Mm-hmm. Like he wants to be let go. Yeah. He's begging to let go. Somebody just, you know, let me go. You've got to let me go, Brent. Let me go, man. <laughs> let me go. You know, though guilty of no crime was the best years of our life. Yeah. I, <laughs> in that video, um, I do remember it. I watched it recently and he's with his two bandmates flanked on either side and then they disappear. Uh-huh. And then he looks around and he's kind of freaked out by that. And then he begins to break into that run. Right. And he looks back. But you don't really know if he, like, what he's running from. Is he afraid that the other two dudes are gone? Like, what is it? Right. Is he trying to get away from whatever I'm interested in, in in the correlation you make between, you know, the major and minor interplay, but also him running. Mm. I wonder what was going through your mind as you imagined what he may be running towards or away from. Yeah, I'm uh, I have a, I have a pessimistic frame of mind these days, to be honest. And so <laughs> <laughs> for me, it was always a case of starting off with the major, uh, but ending with the minor, mm. because I kind of feel that's that's the way of uh, that's the way of getting old. It's the way of entropy. Mm. So we always start off whole and then things fall apart. Mm-hmm. We fall apart. Everything falls apart. So starting off major is great, but in the end, you're going to switch into minor one of these days, mm-hmm. uh, and you can run as fast as you can. Uh, it's not going to do you any good. And the running in slow motion I found very interesting as, as, kind of as, as a reflection on that, because running in slow motion or being caught in slow motion, of course, is the stuff of nightmares. Yes. I often have still nightmares about, for me, it's, it's trying to get to airplane gates. Mm. I'm at an airport right? Because I fly a lot and the plane's leaving and I've got to get to the gate and I just can't get out of slow motion like molasses and yeah. just feeling like you're struggling against a wind blowing against you. But there's a beauty to the visual of somebody running. I mean, the, there's a the marvelous kind of visual poetry yes. of all of that physical activity because it's a it's a gorgeous thing when when anything is going really fast in physical motion horses running people running you know that kind of athletic endeavor when somebody's putting you know all of their effort into that kind of physical activity you almost need to slow it down to appreciate the the beauty of all of those 
parts all moving together in perfect harmony yeah. to achieve whatever that kind of goal is. So the the beauty of it kind of belongs to the major key part of the song, right? The the inevitability of it and the and the fear that he might be experiencing and running away from whoever has taken his bandmates is kind of the minor part of it, mm-hmm. which for me kind of suggests that there's always going to be the minor within the major. Mm. Like there's always going to be beauty in the resignation and the downside in the same way that all of your happiness in life, all of the major um, key part of your life is always going to have that under that undertone of minor. Yeah. Right? It's, the minor key is never too far away. So if you were going to be optimistic about it, the trick would be then to enjoy the, the beauty of the major key as much as you can mm-hmm. and acknowledge in a way you really, in the same way, binary oppositions, you can't really uh, appreciate light until you have some knowledge of dark. Right. You can't really appreciate the major key without a knowledge of the minor key. It's true. If you didn't have the minor key, there would be no such thing as a major key. That's right. You know, I gave a talk, we were talking about this, I gave a talk in Washington recently, and I I touched on that topic about tones and semitones Mm. and major and minor key. And so I played Happy Birthday in its usual major key. Right. And then I said, you know, this is such a powerful concept that we can make any song in the history of, of songwriting sad, even the happiest song of all, Happy right. Birthday. And people were like, no, there's no way. Not possible. And so I played it. It's like a feudal dirge. Like, it's, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And people's faces were, they were shocked. They were like, oh, and almost disgusted. That's a significant thing. It's it's a powerful concept. Have you seen or heard? I think it might be a YouTube video. Um, the the exercise in that where somebody took um, REM's "Losing My Religion" and made it into a major key. Oh, so there was a major key version of "Losing My Religion," and of course, it's it's fascinating. It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. It's really awful. Well, in part because it's not what you're expecting and like all of the all of this the power of that song is is in its minorness. So of course you turn it into a major key, all that it's amazing. It evaporates, all that power just evaporates. And you realize how odd it sounds. It's still recognizably the same song, obviously, but in a different key, you know. No, completely yeah, different. It's funny to reverse that idea <laughs> because there is a certain allure in the in the blackness of those minor keys, yeah. right? In the in the the sorrow and the and the sadness involved. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think when you and I talked last time, I I looked back on the things that that I had suggested we talked about last time, and I realized that a lot of them, um, the shivers that I get from a lot of the other stuff, is actually based on the transition between major and minor, um, because that's it's really easy to enjoy a song that's exclusively in either a major or a minor key. But when things transition between the two, there's something I think very profound in that idea that your whole perspective on the song and by extension life in general can shift with such a, with such a change between a, a tone and a semitone. It's fascinating. Yes, I agree. 
journey is next. <laughs> Don't stop believing. Great synesthesia. Oh, so funny. Um, did you watch that final episode of The Sopranos? No, I didn't. Live? Were you? Did you ever watch The Sopranos? No, you know, I, I'm probably the only person in North America who is not. But yeah, no. I think you might well be <laughs> universally regarded as some of the finest television ever made. Really I appreciate that. Oh yeah, I'll get to it about. Yeah, no, it's it's right up there with uh, The Wire and uh, and Lost and. Hmm. True Detective and all those kind of great sort of TV shows. Anyway, so a lot of TV shows uh, end with a whimper, mm. right? Mm-hmm. A lot of them do. A lot of them are very disappointing. Yeah. Um, as a sidebar, so fascinating, all of the online hatred Game for the of ending Thrones. of Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Just the the vitriol from people on that. It's fascinating. Anyway, I was thinking of that the other day because I was thinking, well, there are some TV shows that, that end with a bang. Mm-hmm. And for me, the biggest bang ending of all time um, has to be the finale of, um, of Sopranos, which was absolutely remarkable. So I, I should state on the record um, yep. that I was never a Journey fan, quite honestly. Uh, I was aware of them and of the song. Uh, and somewhere I've got a playlist of something I think I call it um, cheesy or cheese 80 rocks or 80s <laughs> cheese rock, something like that. So I, I have a personal mental category of what I call cheese rock. Yeah. Uh, and Ario Speedwagon is on there, of course. And uh, both Chicago and Boston, whose names in, as an adult now I actually find way more amusing than I ever did back in the, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and Journey is on there uh, with that particular song which is uh, obviously a karaoke favorite. Mm. And so when it started to play in that finale episode, do you know anything about it? I don't. So I should explain it to you briefly, although, you know, spoiler alert on this. That's fine. Okay, but anyway... So, um, The Sopranos is the story of this, of this mob family. Oh, I do know that. Right, you got that part. Yeah. Okay, so it, it ends with them having this dinner in um in one of their favorite diners they're kind of in a booth there's some shady guys hanging around and there's one particular character who is making everybody nervous he's kind of sweaty he's in a different booth he's clearly up to no good but you're not really sure what no good he's he's up to mm-hmm. and um tony soprano's daughter is late for this family dinner and so she's outside parking well trying to park she's trying to parallel park and so there's this incredible editing, editing exercise where the family's around this table and they're kind of talking about their plans and they're talking about the future and what's the son going to do and et cetera, et cetera. And it's intercut with the daughter who is botching this parallel parking job in the street, okay. right? God bless her. She just can't seem to get it right. She half reverses in. She's got the angle wrong. She's got to pull back out. <laughs> she's got to do it, you know, several times. And, of course, intercut with this really dodgy guy who's clearly up to no good and has obviously ill intent on his mind, you know, in the diner. And at one point, he goes past the table that they're all sitting at. The daughter's still not there yet, right? And he kind of, he looks at the table, realizes that not everyone is there, and then passes on through into the bathroom. And it's really tense. All during this, Journey is playing. Mm. Don't stop believing. The song is playing, you know, with the piano going on. And of course, eventually she parks the car. Eventually it's excruciating, right? Excruciating. She comes in, she sits down, right? And at the end of the song, when, when dude is singing, you know, don't stop, he's doing the chorus, don't stop believing. 
halfway through the end of one of those phrases, basically he gets to, don't stop, believe, and it just stops. Mm. And the screen goes black. And that's it. Black screen. And for, I don't know, 45 seconds, 50 seconds, which is a long time you appreciate. Certainly. There is black screen and there's no music and that's it. Wow. And, and around the continent, everybody immediately said, God damn it. What happened to my cable connection? <laughs> right. Is the power out? Has the cable gone down? Like, what the hell? Yeah. Like we were, everyone was aghast. And then of course, eventually everyone realized, no, like that's, that's the end of the show. It's, it's, that's how it ends. And that was the end. That was the end. That was the end. And it was in the middle of that song, the course of that song. Don't stop. And then, of course, it stops basically after he sings, don't stop. I like that. And so I've also come to believe now that there's a, I don't know whether it's a whole generation because obviously you don't have this connection, but I don't think anybody who saw that can now hear don't stop believing Mm. without thinking about that incredibly tense, beautifully edited scene, which, of course, later we realized was actually really showing how Tony dies. It's how he gets shot. Yeah. Because three seasons before, he's got some he's got some great line where he's telling somebody what he thinks death is all about because they're talking about death, and he says something like, "Well, I just it's just I just think it's black, just things just end. Uh, it's just blackout, man. Like that's it. There's mm-hmm. no heaven. There's no nothing. It's just whoomph, and then there's black and that's it ends. Right. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Perfect. So presumably, dude came out of the bathroom with a gun, shot him, shot them all, shot them all dead, yeah. and in the middle of the song, the song just cuts out, and that's kind of the end of it." Perfect. Which is a really interesting that the cheesiness of the song and of the band and the air that it comes from is narratively congruent with the cheesiness of the soprano setup, <laughs> right? So there's a narrative, a cultural narrative that accompanies Journey, which is kind of congruent with the cultural narrative that was being kind of done in the Sopranos. But I mean, of course, saying don't stop and then stopping it is, is really abrupt. Um, but I certainly get shivers when I think of the, the tension of the scene because the tension of the scene was so at the time incongruous with with the cheesiness of the song which is obviously a big you know lighter anthem so putting those two in kind of juxtaposition with each other was really novel kind of idea yeah and it was so abrupt and so awful when you kind of realize what has actually happened that the two of them refused never never think of it in, in the same way ever again that's a great example <laughs> Okay, we have three more. Okay. Bjork is the next one. All uh, is full of love. All is full of love. Great video. So let's talk for a minute about the video. Now, I had never seen it before. Okay. I watched it, you know, after having a look at your list. And uh, it's peculiar. Yes. <laughs> a lot of uh, this is, so there's two film, for, for people who haven't seen it, there's two female robots. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts with the first one kind of being tuned up, it looks like. And then the two female robots actually, you know, start making out. Yeah. And there's a lot of liquid being poured on the robots. Yeah. It's a lot of uh, coming in and out of them. Lubrication. <laughs> yeah. Like are, milky. It's like almost a. It's not oil. It's no. It's peculiar. Yeah. yeah. Super peculiar. Peculiar is the operative word. <laughs> well, and it's Bjork. Of course, it's going to be well, peculiar. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and it's a Bjork video because she's somehow through CGI got her face superimposed on one of these robots, right? Exactly. So one of the robots is essentially Bjork. Yes. 
Yeah, and then she has this other robot. I uh, believe the director was Chris Cunningham, okay. uh, who is a famous music video director. He's done a whole number of things um, that you would that you would recognize. I have this great box set of DVDs. Do you remember DVDs? There was this thing once upon a time called called DVDs, mm. digital video discs. Once upon a time, wow. right before there were torrents and mp4s so long ago yeah so long ago and i've got a box set of music videos and there's a whole there's a whole box dedicated to the videos of chris cunningham and that's uh, and that's one of them uh and i hadn't actually ever encountered the song before i saw the video Mm -hmm. so it was one of those synesthetic experiences where i saw the video and heard the song at the same time which is a really interesting way to consume music mm. when you do it kind of that first way once upon a time there was this glorious age of music videos <laughs> where there was this really uh, there was a lot of energy being devoted to visualizing music in that particular format and it's of course it's peaked it's gone uh, i think a lot of bands are still obviously doing music videos still but the emphasis placed on it kind of as a nascent art form i believe is gone i don't mm-hmm. think people have the people have the heart for it anymore and now I see more bad music videos than I see I see good ones. Yes. And I've actually I've actually come to the point now where I'm 180 degrees from where I used to be with music videos. Where at one point I would always try to encounter a song for the first time in connection with its music video, because I wanted to see how the artist had visualized their own music as part of what the overall artistic aesthetic experience is supposed to be like. But so many of them were bad. <laughs> Uh, they're so badly done that I'm now actually done the reverse now where I'm also very now very keen to encounter a song in purely auditory format first. Yep. And then maybe I'll go and see the video. Mm. And if the first five or ten seconds of the video suggest to me that maybe there is some helpful imagination at play there, then I'll watch the whole thing. And if not, I'll turn it off because yeah. I don't want it to be spoilt. Because synesthesia cuts both ways, right? If you mm-hmm. have a really bad visual experience with music then that can taint the music because right. mutual implication works that way, right? Mutual implication is this idea that when you put two things together, they imply each other mutually, that one thing impacts your perception of the other in the same way that the other impacts your perception of the one thing. Right. When you put things in connection with each other, then sometimes they're hard to unfuse. They're kind of connected in that way. Um, but for Bjork, that particular song, I never heard it before I saw it. I saw it at the same time that I heard it. So for me, absolutely, we'll never hear it without seeing it. Right. And in fact, even seeing stills from the video will then make me think of the song. So they're they're perfectly connected in that way. Uh, it's one of the music videos that I I have. I do have a couple of guest lectures on um, on semiotics for uh, for marketing professionals, and part of that is a musical semiotic exercise. Um, and part of it has to do with the role of white in technology which that music video is also very helpful in yes. because the, all of the characters are kind of clad in, in a white, um, a white casing, a white armor, which is uh, a theme that plays out in pop culture texts all the way through ghost in the machine, Stormtroopers, dot, dot, dot. There's like a, that's a whole different podcast. We could, we could talk <laughs> about that. So, it gives me shivers because there's there's a there is some lovely symmetry there's a lovely poetry to the pacing of the music and the pacing of the video so the way things gradually come to light um the editing of it the way everything is kind of in slow motion 
very much works with the way that the song is, is constructed. And then it's got a really transcendent chorus in it. By the time she actually starts to sing the chorus, which is the name of the song, you know, All Are Full of Love, uh, that's the point at which the two robot android characters kind of are now gazing at each other with with love in their eyes and they kind of start to, to make out with each other and so those there's a coordination a timing coordination between their um their robot love and the transcendent music of the song and also the the rest of it's just so weird and so odd but so beautifully filmed and so technically accomplished Mm -hmm. the way all of the mechanical pieces are all fitting together it's really interesting for me the the juxtaposition between the the um the technological mechanics of the characters and the emotion of the music because the music is so human and so emotional and bjork is so expressive like her voice is such an instrument immediately recognizable never mistake it for anybody else ever and of course, she's really giving it all in that song because it's a love song. Mm-hmm. So to combine that with these with these robots who are being welded together and sparks and this milk light, you know, uh, fluid which is coming in and out of them as they're basically being put together, for them then to find love in the middle of all that technology with the music, there's such a maelstrom of stuff going on there. I get shivers every time for that. But it's thin aesthetic because I'm not convinced that the music alone would have done it. It's putting all of that really bizarre science fiction imagery into the music to kind of provide this counterpoint, thematic counterpoint to what's going on musically. It gives you an entire level of depth to what's going on in the song that I don't think you would get from just the music alone. No. And for me, that's the best part of music videos. If music videos can give you a layer that wasn't obvious to you before or not apparent or not accessible to you before... And if you can get some hint that maybe that was a layer that was always there in the music for the artist, and they're able to use the visual medium to bring that to you, then that's a wonderful thing. That It's complete justification for the entire music video art form. Yes. So for those of you who have not seen this video, I recommend you check it out and see if you share the same views as Mr. Charles Leach. It's a, uh, it's a great example of how... Uh, modern technology, if you want to communicate the idea of state-of-the-art, top-notch, cutting, bleeding-edge, prototype technology, mm-hmm. the visualization of that has to be white casing on top of black technology because that is the visual trope that communicates that idea in our culture. And there are, I've, I've got a, I collected examples of it for this this guest thing that I did, and it starts again interestingly with 2001: Space Odyssey, ah. uh, because the um, the space pod that Hal uses to try to kill um, Dave Bowman is white on the outside, but kind of black technology on the inside. Ah. And then stormtroopers, of course, are the same, right? White on the outside, but black on the inside. Um, Apple uses it, so iPhones are like that. Land Rover did the Evoke, was done exactly like that, white white casing and then all the technologies black on the inside and so on and so on and so on ghost in the shell um the character of major and ghost in the shell exactly the same um all androids are built like that got to be white on the outside but you got to be back black and complex on the inside wow yeah sidebar (laughs) all right massive attack is next an unfinished sympathy Right, exactly. Now, this I think was one. Um, well, I'm, do I remember correctly? You weren't as familiar with this one. I was not. Okay. 
I did watch I, the video. It's, I, I was thinking of all of the, to get to that list, by the way, just again as a sidebar, I started off by thinking of, um, of course, songs, music that gave me shivers. And then I, I mentally cross-referenced that against all of the, the visuals that I associate with those mm-hmm. to see whether any of them were especially effective in either giving me more or better or magnified kind of um, goosebumps or shivers. And there were a whole number of songs that didn't make the cut. Um, I wanted very much to to offer um, Six Underground by Sneaker Pimps. But then I looked at the video and the video for that sucks. It's a great example <laughs> of a sucky music video, right? Done with a budget of $45. Anyway... Not Unfinished Sympathy mm. uh, by Massive Attack. So Massive Attack was this uh, dub trip-hop band. The song has a music video that's done in one take. They did seven takes of it, mm. but it's uh, one take on a steady cam shot. Yeah. And it's really just the singer. They had a, a guest artist doing the vocals whose name, um, shamefully, I forget just off the top of my head. And she's singing the song. And she's walking through the streets of um, southern Los Angeles. That's it. That's the video. But the the video is compelling in the sense that, well, first of all, there's a, there's a, an individual with no legs skateboarding behind her, like propelling himself with his hands. Yeah. Which it's just, it's very, uh, it's South LA. So she's walking around this very dirty, dangerous looking neighborhood. And you're just, yeah. you, it's, it's almost like the visual equivalent of the Megadrum because like, you're, you're imagining something bad's going to happen when she turns to the next corner kind of thing. Right. And it's, for, from what I gather, I mean, it's just, it's real. All these people are coming out from their storefronts and looking to see, you know, the camera. Everybody's looking at the camera. So it's not staged at all. The lore is that um, half of the people you see in that video are uncredited extras who they couldn't actually clear out of the streets. They mm-hmm. tried. They said, we're shooting a video here. Mm-hmm. And half the people in that neighborhood basically said, you know what? No. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not going anywhere. And yeah. so, yeah, exactly right. They were all real. And part of the tension from that comes from the fact that she's clearly oblivious yes. to all of it. She's not paying any attention mm-hmm. because she's very wrapped up in her song, right? Which is a, a sad song, right? It's, it's all about the bad you did to me and you did me wrong. And I just, I'm, um, and half the time she's walking, she's got her eyes closed or half closed as if she's kind of blinking back the tears and she's clearly walking in a way to try to get away from it or just walking for the sake of doing something to distract herself from whatever emotional trauma the song is des- uh, is describing while she's walking through this shitty neighborhood exactly yeah. where she could you know get jumped and killed at any moment which obviously she's not and it starts off with with a gang um, there's a gang that starts off with with a, a big scary dog and guys with you know wife beaters on and looking really tough in that kind of South Central LA kind of way. Yeah. And she kind of steps in front of them and then and goes off. And of course, it's one take on a Steadicam, so it just kind of follows her all through that. Yep. But that kind of sets the tone of this is a bad neighborhood and there are yes. gangs roving and she's going to be walking through this. Yeah. Right. Incredibly vulnerable emotionally, incredibly vulnerable physically. Mm-hmm. And is she going to make it? Is she going to be okay? What on earth has happened to her that was so awful that a walk oblivious through South Central LA, LA is clearly a lesser risk <laughs> than whatever trauma she's just kind of gone through? Exactly. Holy shit. Yeah. Right. And of course, and the music kind of unfolds. Yeah. And synesthesia, there's the, some lovely parallels because the, 
the music's got this very kind of trippy beat to it. And there's a rhythm to the beat, right? It's it's a very smooth song. Mm-hmm. And because it's a steady cam shot all the way through, the camera work is very smooth. The camera work just kind of tracks her smoothly through the city. So the smoothness of the execution of it is a really interesting juxtaposition to the tension that you feel and the trauma that she's obviously singing about that she's escaping from. So there's a really nice kind of juxtaposition. Your brain, of course, is always trying to make sense of these kind of juxtapositions, right? Our brains do that. When you put two things together that don't look like they intuitively belong together, your brain always tries to come up with reasons for why that must make sense. Like, there has to be a reason. There's got to be a story for why X has been put next to Y, given that X has nothing to do with Y. What could that possibly be? Let's try to figure that out, because that's a problem. It's a puzzle. And, of course, we want to try to solve that puzzle. And then your brain is kind of engaged with that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's so beautifully done, and that's I get shivers every time for that. Yep. Last one, Michael Kemanuka. Ah, uh, yeah. Cold little heart. Cold little heart. <laughs> so here's the story behind Cold Little Heart. I was doing work in Skokie, Illinois. Okay. Right, as one does. Skokie, as one does. Yeah, yeah as one does. So it was. Uh, it was a client, a fast food client. We often do fast food work in major cities. So Chicago, for example, would be a yeah. logical place to do to do um, to do research. But in this case, we didn't want to be in Chicago. We needed to be in the suburbs, the deep suburbs. And hmm. so Skokie is a deep s- suburb of Chicago. And so I stayed in a Holiday Inn in Skokie, Illinois. Hmm. And I had a really early flight. I got up at the crack of dawn, and I just kind of assumed that I could call an Uber. And could get to the airport. In Skokie. Uh, in Skokie, which, of course, right there was my first mistake. And so <laughs> I called up uh, Uber. And, of course, sure enough, at 4 o'clock in the morning in Skokie, Illinois, no, there are no Ubers. And so we called the cab company. The cab company said, yeah, no problem. We'll be there in three hours to get you. Oh, God. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm wheels up in an hour and 20 minutes. So that's yeah. not going to work. So it was a bit of a panicky moment. But while I was waiting in some degree of distress... I suddenly became aware that there was the song playing on the speakers in the lobby of this of this hotel. And it was terrific song. Slow, minor keys, really sad, entropy, world falling apart. Perfect for me, as you know, right <laughs> up my street. And I realized I needed to know what the song was. So pulled out one of the greatest technological tools that humans have ever invented since the apes in 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> I give you, I give you, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say? Shazam. Shazam is the best thing oh, ever. Oh my God. Anyway, so for this song, I pulled out Shazam and of course I Shazammed it. And Shazam, in its typical, brilliant, inexplicable way, knew instantly what it was. Um, there it was, Cold Little Heart. I went into YouTube to see what the video was like, and it was one of those great examples where the first five seconds absolutely galvanized me, riveted me to my seat. It was like, holy shit, mm. this is amazing. Absolutely struck me. I'd had no exposure to the song in the way that I learned later. Most people have had exposure to the song because it's actually fairly high-profile song used in connection with a television show pretty little liars hmm. 
Not but sure. if it's not Pretty Little Liars, it's one of those shows that's got a title very much like Pretty Little Liars. Okay. Um, you know, people who who know it, who are listening to this, will probably be rolling their eyes and going, oh, dude, how could you not know it wasn't that? But okay, it was something like that. And my guess is that whatever radio station was playing it in the lobby of the Holiday Inn was probably playing it because it's well-known through. But I had no idea. I, mm. I just kind of heard it. It's one of those songs that's got a prelude almost. It's got these very slow um, chords to start. And the chords kind of switch between minor and major. They're kind of flipping around a little bit. And then eventually the song starts. And it starts slow and then kind of builds. And by the end of the song, he's it's going. It's got some rhythm and he's a lot of stuff going on eventually. He kind of eventually layers up. But the music video, I have no idea what the music video has got to do with anything. Not a clue. Mm. Um, but it's it's shot in that kind of magic hour, either at night or in the morning, magic hour, where everything is kind of bathed in this golden glow. And it's got these two characters who are, it seems, involved in something, um, informed by the music. They're kind of staring at each other. There's clearly something is going wrong. There's some problem, some tension, some dramatic conflict going on. There's this vintage car that they're in. So they're in trouble or they're about to get into trouble or they're trying to escape from trouble. Who knows? But there's something. There's something happening there. The chords of that musical accompaniment fit so perfectly with the visuals going on there. There's so much tension and so much kind of pregnant with meaning um, feeling and emotion going on there that it sets you up then for the song. The lyrics, um, Cold Little Heart, are about how the singer seems to be kind of complaining about the fact that they're not very good at feeling emotion. Mm-hmm. Right. And and they're very self-deprecating lyrics. It's like, I'm terrible. I'm awful. I'm full of shit. I've got a cold, cold little heart, which is completely at odds with the music. Right. The musicology part of it is as emotion, emotionally full, rich that you can ever imagine music to be. I mean, it's incredibly rich. So he's he's making a liar of himself with the music. Mm. And then, of course, on top of that, there's this golden glow visual of these two characters on the verge of doing some awful, terrible thing or having just come from some awful, terrible thing. And then, of course, as the song picks up and the song's got this great momentum and then it builds and builds and builds and electric guitar comes in towards the end and it gets, it gets it get kind of really intense. Oh, it's amazing. So it's undetermined as to what happens. One of the characters dies. Right. But we don't know if he committed suicide or got in an accident because they show the car in the road with all the doors open and right. the other kids staring at it. I'm not sure exactly what happened there. Yeah. I mean, it's it's cinematic, mm. the music, before the song actually kicks in. That whole kind of prelude, which is which is just chords hanging there. And because they're just hanging and you're you're waiting for something to happen... And it's so cinematic that the, the pause and the potential for all to start happening in that is, is so incredibly rich. Yes. I get goosebumps every time. There's a lot of anticipation. Thank you so much for coming in today, Charles. See my mind blown once again. Wow. Okay. I'm fascinated. Fascinating. My yeah. pleasure, as always. Do you have time for beer? Let's go have a beer. Absolutely. All right. Great. Okay, this has been Brent Jensen and No Sleep Till Sudbury with my very special guest, Mr. Charles Leach, who I am going to drink a beer with. (laughs) Till next time, folks, take good care.
Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Suppery, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.